HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said this is the best pile of meat I've ever had and then said, but if you added bacon. Tune in to this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant located in Williamsburg. My guest today is executive chef Emily Ewan of Besso. She has worked at Balud Sud, DB Bistro in Singapore, La Gavroche in London, and Voudemont in Australia. Besso opened in New York City's NoHo neighborhood in August 2016 and features modern Japanese dishes such as short rib with uni, seared pork belly with shiso fried rice, miso steamed clams, and edamame with kombu and charcoal. Besso's fried chicken was listed by New York Magazine as one of the top in the city. Tasting Table and Zagat both named Chef a rising star to watch. And Time Out Magazine awarded the restaurant four, or five, four out of five stars, and it received a glowing write-up in the New York Times as well. This is what owner Maiko Kyogoku has to say about the restaurant. Besso was conceived from a desire to share my family's food traditions. My love of Japanese food comes from my mother. Meals were a way for her to teach me and my sister about our Japanese heritage. In summer, we often enjoyed chilled udon native to my mother's hometown, and in winter, we would gather in the kitchen, taking turns pounding rice into dumplings for her famous hot pot stew. Today, we're going to talk about many things, growing up in Vancouver, coming to the United States to work, working for Daniel Balud, and of course, working at Besso. Chef, welcome to the show. Thank you. So... You are a Canadian. You grew up in Vancouver, and now you are cooking for the last several years in New York City. Uh, Vancouver is a wonderful, diverse, uh, exciting food city. Uh, it has a, a huge amount of its own sort of international culture. Talk a little bit about Vancouver and what it was like growing up there um, and, uh, and what your first kind of food experiences were like <laughs> in Vancouver. Um, Vancouver has the most amazing Asian food, and I think uh, we're right by the coast, so we have amazing uh, seafood. Um, You have, like, the best sushi there. Um, So I think at a very young age, I was exposed to really good Asian food. (laughs) And, um, I mean, I think the food scene uh, for cooking I think in the culinary world is it's growing but I think it wasn't growing as fast as I would want it so um, 
I was definitely thinking of moving out very young. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, my childhood, it was, it was really good. My parents were immigrants. They um, only moved to Vancouver a few years before I was born. Um, my dad was a cook, and uh, he, was, he was a really interesting fella. I think uh, some of the earliest memories I have of um, him, I would... Um, he would go to the fair and he would buy me some chickens. Um, and then I would, I thought they were my pets. And then um, when they were a little bit older, I would come home from school one day and um, they'd be on the dinner table, which I didn't find out till years later. Um, but, and then he would just like have various pets for me um, when I was younger, like frogs. And we would just, I did not know that we ate them all. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little bit of a disconnect between, oh, it's my pet, and then, oh, it's disappeared, yeah, and it's quite, dinner time. quite betrayed when I was a teenager, <laughs> and my, par- my mom like told me that. <laughs> and so, why Vancouver? They moved there from China. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was uh, in Vancouver that specifically brought them there? Um, how did they make the decision to move to Canada? Um, my grandfather uh, was coming back and forth. He was working on the... Great Canadian Railway um, mining, and uh, he, um, yeah, and I think it was just like other family members just came over, and um, yeah, my parents were seeking a better life for us, and we also there was also the one child policy back then, um, so I would not have been born if <laughs> we didn't move to Vancouver because you have an older sibling, obviously. I do, I do, <laughs> and uh, Vancouver. I have never been there, but I have heard that it is uh, very cosmopolitan. It has a lot of European aspects to it, and that it has a diversity to it that makes it feel not quite like it's in North America. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, I think growing up, we there was uh, a, you know you meet so many different people, and it was really really multicultural. Um, and uh, I mean, like we, it was just a, like a very normal thing to be um in class with like just a lot of different people and you meet so many like indians and and like chinese korean japanese um so that was like a very normal thing uh for us growing up and there was a there's a really big chinese community there as well so you your dad was a cook and what did your mom do and was there pressure on you as um as sort of the the next generation to go on to do greatness was there pressure from them to go into a specific field or um you know go into higher education oh yeah okay i mean as like asian parents we were in piano class <laughs> very <laughs> stereotypical like so piano this, class. this for you the stereotype is true you were <laughs> yes but my parents were um very very supportive they were never um they're i mean they were more supportive of what we were like of our happiness more than anything. Um, my brother is uh, really smart and he always did really well in school and I would not do well. In school. I would be in summer school every summer trying to catch up because I would always be failing. But my brother was like the smart one and he um, went on to like go to Oxford <laughs> and um, he's like just super smart but I never felt any um, I mean, I did feel a little bit of pressure, but like in the end, if I wanted to become like a garbage truck woman, they would be very supportive of that. And it was, I mean, they would ask like when I started cooking, like, are you going back to school? I'm like, um, no, I think this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and it took a while. And I think after like five years, I think they uh, understood that this is what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Do you think that part of the reason that you started getting interested in cooking was it because it was not traditional, like it wasn't schooling, or was it, was it, did you simply just acquire a cooking job and then you found out later that you liked it? Um, I think it was, uh, it was definitely when I started going to culinary school. Um, and I just think I got exposed to a different world and like working with your hands and like, you know, filleting fish for the first time. And I'm just like, I just, I never excelled in school. And like, this was something I really cared about. And then I was like top of my class. Um, and it was just easy for me because I was really interested in what I was doing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, it was just really easy for me. And I knew. So it just is a different part of your brain sitting in a yeah. class and uh, 
looking at textbooks and hearing mm-hmm. lectures is obviously a lot different than hands-on training. So yeah. when you, you got to culinary school and you started to really work with your hands and and all this product, uh, where were you at that point? Were you in Vancouver? At, I was in Vancouver, cu- in yeah. In culinary school. And was it, what type of program was it? A one year? Were you doing an externship at the same time? Like, how did you get into an actual restaurant after that? Um, I, so it was a one year program at a community college. Um, I just really looked for something like in case cheap in case like I didn't want to do it. Um, and honestly, I think it was the best thing because I think everything, all the all the expensive schools. I mean, no offense to everyone at the CIA who spent like so many, like so much money. I just think it's really not worth it. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, I went to culinary school, and um, from there I worked at um, a nightclub. <laughs> it was really shady. So I was at a nightclub, like, cooking, and then I would be serving after hours um, at this nightclub. And that's kind of where I first, like, started uh, um, my first... Well, I guess my first job in cooking would be Dairy Queen. <laughs> that counts. That <laughs> yeah, definitely that counts. counts. You wouldn't think about it back then, but Hospitality, it yeah. uh, time <clears throat> management, yeah. <laughs> counting down the drawer. Exactly. Uh, and so this nightclub that you were working at, were you putting up food that was like drunk food for customers or did it have a more refined menu? Are we talking about like a Tao where there's actually plated dishes or was it more hot dogs and hamburgers and um, stuff like that? It was, uh, I mean, it was a little bit more plated food cause it was like a proper restaurant before mm-hmm. it was a nightclub. Gotcha. Um, so we would, we, I mean, I still learned about like doing, I remember like linguine with like black beans and like, um, I forgot what else was on there, but it's just like a little bit more plated food. And mm-hmm. it was, um, and it was like, it was pretty decent, um, um, but I didn't work there for very long. There was a shooting, <laughs> so I closed down. <laughs> okay, so when you say shady, you mean that this was a terrible working environment? <laughs> yeah, there was a shooting. So, <laughs> uh, so it's it's you know the, usually the reason that people leave places is uh, not enough money or the chef was an asshole, but uh, there was a shooting. <laughs> yeah, so, there was a shooting. So, uh, so then, where what did you move on to next? Uh, what was the next step in your? career um so i moved to a restaurant called chin chin um an italian restaurant with a wood-fired grill and oven um i worked in garmanger at the time and uh, really i mean it was it was really my first taste of like how hard kind of it was gonna be for a woman um in this uh environment because the chef would i mean when i felt like i was like good enough and asked to learn more um, I asked to be on saute station and I, I just like couldn't believe that like he said, like you're you're not strong enough. You're like you're you're too small. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm like, what? <laughs> this is like insane to me. I never like, you know, culinary school, I never thought like this would happen um to me so quickly. They never tell talk about this in culinary school or anything like that. Um so I real I mean I didn't quit, but I really uh, started to uh, um, connect with the pastry chef there, and um, his name was Thierry. Um, but he really shaped the rest of my career. He was a pastry chef for uh, Marco Pierre White, and um, he for like many years. And uh, he's French, and he just worked for a lot of really, really great people. Um, he was roommates with Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> so like he was back at, and he was also working at like Roche. So back in the day when it was just like, uh, like really at its like prime with all the really great chefs. Um, and he just really like took me under his wing and he, I mean, he taught me how to do bread and like pastries. Um, and I would be, um, working in pastries, still working Garmanger, but I would be in pastries on my, uh, day off, just like working for free f- and for six months. And then eventually he let me um, be on pastry full time. Um, but yeah, he was really the first one who kind of like believed in me and talked about all his travels and really just got me um, into that, into traveling and cooking. It sounds like the chef telling you that you couldn't do it fired you up and got you to really push a lot harder through. Yeah. And, and then you go down this sort of different path of uh, pastry and it does end up taking you overseas, right? Because he recommends that you should go stage overseas, right? So he pretty much kind of 
pushes you uh, to London, right? Um, well, I first moved to, so I was uh, 21. I moved to Australia. Okay. So I was like, I wanted to move the furthest away from Canada uh, as I could because I <laughs> just didn't got want. Far. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just didn't want a backup plan. Like, I just wanted to do it and, like, not look back and just... I didn't want to be close enough to home that I could just, like, change my mind and fly home. Um, so I moved to Melbourne by myself. Um, and that was... Uh, I worked for a chef called Shannon Bennett um, at Voudemont, and he did uh, modern French cooking. And that was really the first time I worked, like, 16 hours a day. <laughs> so I did not know what I was getting into, like just sitting down to to the bathroom to take a pee break was like amazing. <laughs> so those those m- couple minutes of the day that yes. you get to carve out for yourself. Yeah, you would just close your eyes and just take a piss. <laughs> and, and, and you're in Australia, and obviously you've set yourself up so that you can't just come back right, right away. But right. how long did you spend there um, working those 16-hour days? Um, my visa was only a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a year uh, living there. And um, I really just had like the best time. I mean, our our team now is like, we were so like close-knit. We lived in a, like, I lived in a house with like a lot of the cooks as well. And like my chef de parties, uh, which was not always very comfortable because they're like, we were working right beside them and like if you get yelled at at work and you have to go home and you're like, oh, trying to avoid them. Yeah, you got to... Like, no, you use the bathroom first. You got to share the like, coffee machine with yeah. your boss who just screamed at you yeah, or something like that. Yeah, that was a little bit uncomfortable and it would never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but overall, the experience of Australia, does it, do you still think of, about maybe going back there? Like, do you miss being there so much? Is Was it uh, a formal experience from just a cooking perspective or did you love did you fall in love with the country as well or I mean, yeah definitely the country was amazing um i didn't do that much traveling back uh when i was living there it was just uh work really mm-hmm. um but it was i mean mostly it was just about the restaurant and i just loved like our that time and um i mean i would definitely go back to like travel but i don't think i would go back to live what are the big takeaways from that uh restaurant specifically like was are there techniques leadership style that you now look back on and say oh i really learned things concretely there like did you kind of discover anything about yourself while you were there during that experience um yeah i mean i think i discovered i could really work long hours (laughs) so it was the i definitely realized that I could, I have the endurance for that. Um, but I think, um, the biggest takeaway was really just being among like really passionate people. Um, and then we were, it was one of the top restaurants in Australia during that time. And, and the chef is like very, very well known now and, and opened many, many restaurants after that. Um, but I think it's just like being in that kind of really submersive like environment, uh, was was really like I think the biggest like takeaway um just being among like really passionate like driven people which I never experienced like before in living in Vancouver and I think was what I was looking for basically everyone was there for the job to work so it creates this environment where it's okay sort of somewhat to grind it out for 16 hours a day because everyone's right beside you exactly. doing doing the same thing. Uh, and then, so was your next stop after that, were you in London or did you come back to Canada? I did come back to Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked for a little bit at the same restaurant, Chin Chin, for a different chef um, who was amazing and very supportive. Um, and I did do saute station. <laughs> Hell yeah, good. Because <laughs> I was like, and I, and, it, and I killed it. It was like um, a lot of fun. I spent summer back home and then I reapplied for a visa and I uh, went to London after that. And so you go to the famed uh, Lagavroche in mm-hmm. London and uh, did that live up to its uh, hype? How was that experience? Um, it definitely lived up to its hype. It was the hardest job, I think, um, up until now. <laughs> um, up until being the boss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, it was definitely the hardest job. It is like, I mean, it is two Michelin star. It is known for like, it does have a re- reputation for um, 
being a really, really tough kitchen. I mean, uh, Ment- mentally very tough. Yes, kitchen. yes. Yeah. And I think like my first chef, Thierry, really just prepared me for that. I think he was he would never say that it was about the physical and you oh he would always just be like it's in the mind and it's absolutely true because like everybody can do the physical and you can um do that but you just have to like stay in it um but it was i mean it was really tough i think like people did not even get to know your names because like you weren't people didn't last so like the chef would not say hi to me for like six months <laughs> or like uh yeah until like, they knew that you're sticking yeah, around and it, that you could kind of cut it right uh for a lot of folks listening that have never ever stepped foot in a michelin kitchen mm-hmm. um they've only seen things on tv yeah. and, and you know <laughs> chef's table and and whatnot is it truly a is it a military precision? Is it oh, all it whites is. everywhere? Can you talk a little bit about just what it felt like to show up there? And I mean, you had a lot of cooking experience, but you are just thrown into this high-end uh, Michelin restaurant in London, and the expectations must have been sky high. Yeah, I think um, the type of precision and like perfection that they expect is really, really high, and you have to really just be on it every single day and it was a lot of it was each man for itself or each woman for itself um so even like my own chef to party would throw me under the bus <laughs> like there was no like you would just try to be the person to not get yelled at that day <laughs> please have your mies done yes please don't spill or break anything yes pretty much and what type of roles did you take on in, in that kitchen? Um, I started as meat garnish, um, and then I moved on to uh, gar manger, and then I did uh, hot, we we called it, like there's just different stations. Um, so it was like gar manger, and then also like hot starters, and pastry as well. Um, but I mean, by by the end of that, I think I, I really learned a lot about myself. I really wanted to quit. Um, and I think it took a lot in me, like not to quit. And but, I mean, like you live so far from the restaurant because London is like so big and really expensive. So I mean, mentally, it was just really hard to wake up every day for six months. I would say because <laughs> um, you're just so tired, you're so drained. Um, I think it was a very normal thing. Like I, I like fainted and like other people like fainted. You're just like so tired just from exhaustion, from exhaustion. Wow. And like you don't eat well. Um, um, and you're, yeah, again with like a bunch of people who are very driven. Um, and it was, but I mean, I'm still friends with like a lot of them now and also friends with my chef who I've saw, I saw recently, like at this past summer in London, um, and had a coffee with. So people, forget that it's really stretching yourself mentally physically emotionally to the Mm -hmm. limit and that uh if you want it bad enough you'll stick around but there are those days when you have that inner monologue of i don't know if it's worth it yeah (laughs) i I don't know if i can make it today and do you remember how you kind of pushed yourself over the hump to continue going was it do you think it was just drive hunger like were you just scared? Like why, when it's so hard and it's just brutal every single day and you're getting yelled at, what made you want to go back to the kitchen? Um, I think uh, all chefs have a very obsessive like, and uh, addictive personality. Um, so I think I, I just didn't want to let myself down. I came here to accomplish a goal. It was to work a year there to get like, um, um, to get, them to a reference and I think uh really it was just I just didn't want to disappoint myself and like it was just to accomplish my goal of working there and but it'd be I mean I just remember in the winter like we were in a basement and you'd wake up and it'd be dark <laughs> and then like you just see people's feet like walking <laughs> Uh, like and so you don't see like daylight and then you go on break and it's like getting dark and then you leave work it's dark (laughs) so we were like in a dungeon um but yeah those were winter was hard there 
the the vampire experience exactly. of of a line cook working their ass off. We're gonna take a quick break, and when we come back, we're gonna start talking more about New York City mm-hmm. and uh, your current role. Stick with us here on the line. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled Wild Alaska Pollock. Unlike other pollock products, Wild Alaska Pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try Wild Alaska Pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Welcome back to the show. A quick note on our Winter in the Garden Heritage Radio Network holiday party and tasting. It's happening on Monday, December 3rd in the Palm House and Yellow Magnolia Cafe at Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. It's a 6 p.m. VIP reception followed by 7 p.m. general admission. It's going to be an epic tasting event. We have tons of chefs coming. There's going to be champagne, oysters, a tour of the Botanic Gardens bonsai room for the VIP hour, and then wine, beer, sake, and signature cocktails to follow. We're going to have a silent auction with incredible one-of-a-kind experiences, including a major, major multi-course chef tasting dinner that I'm going to tell you more about next week during the episode. We're going to have raffle prizes and games, lots of opportunities to take home wine, cookbooks, and of course, we're going to have DJ Cherish the Love spinning tunes all night long. So you can get tickets at heritageradionetwork.org slash gala. And let's jump back into the episode. I'm here with Chef Emily Ewan. She is the executive chef of Besso Restaurant. And before the break, we were talking about uh, the start of her career growing up in Vancouver and a lot of traveling that she did overseas uh, to really get a lot of experience under her belt. And then... What happened after London? Uh, how did you end up working in the Daniel Balud family? And, uh, and what brought you to New York City? Um, I ended up working for the Daniel Balud uh, company when um, I moved to... I wanted to live in Asia. Um, so I moved to Singapore. And uh, I knew somebody was who was a manager at DB Bistro in Singapore. And... Um, uh, yeah, and he got me the job, um, and I mean, I, yeah, Singapore was so much fun, so much traveling, um, and uh, I worked on a lot, all the stations and uh, eventually worked my way up to being the executive sous chef. It seems like you have a fearless ability to just say, I'm going somewhere and then hop on a plane. <laughs> uh, it seems like you just lock it in. Uh Singapore, Australia, London, all these places um, far geographically from home. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Were there times when it was uh, challenging for you to be moving around so much? Or is that exciting to you? Um, Both. I think like you miss out on a lot of your family and friends' birthdays and holidays. Um, But I was just really, I, I knew there was like no better time than in my 20s to do it. Um, I mean, my parents were not that, like, you know, they can take care of themselves. Um, and I think, like, you know, you know, like, my friends didn't have kids. Like, I don't have kids. I wasn't, like, married back then. Um, so I think it was just really just the best time to do it. And I really just believe that, you know, like, life is short. So I think I just wanted to immerse myself and, like, do as much and challenge myself as much as possible. In Singapore was the first job that you rose to a 
high level where you had Mm -hmm. many people underneath you, where you are now in a leadership position uh, with additional responsibilities beyond either just your station or your department, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, What was that experience like taking on uh, so much when you were at um, the Bistro in Singapore? I mean, I think it was a big learning experience. I think the the chef that um, we changed chefs one time and the chef that I... um, that I became executive sous chef for uh, was also new. So I think it was kind of a learning experience for both of us. And we didn't really know each other uh, back then. Um, but it was, it was, um, I mean, it was, it was hard. Like I did not, I really just did not know what I was doing and like how to be a leader. Um, I think at first um, thinking about all like the other sous chefs or like people that were above me, they were just like coming in with a lot of aggression. I thought that was like how I had to be. But I quickly really learned that like being like aggressive or like demanding things was really just not the, you don't, people don't do it. (laughs) People don't give a shit. (laughs) So um, it was just, it was very hard when, you know, you're becoming, you're like cooks and like buddies with everyone and then becoming like their boss um, after that. Um, Even just really like just understanding what it was like to be working for a different chef. And I think like, uh, I had to, I remember there was one time I just really had to stand my ground and put, put my chef in place. Um, I think he, I mean, I think he, so like I, I like screwed up like a bunch of terrines and he, um, I came in the next day and he like wrote a big note on there and I thought it was just really petty and he was just like really just calling me out on like how I like screwed up like these terrines and, um, and I, I really just like sat him down and I was just like, how are you going to expect other people, all the other cooks to respect me if you don't show me respect? Mm-hmm. And I think after that, there was a really big turning point in our relationship and we worked really well together. Um, and we, uh, but yeah, I think it was, it was good. <laughs> in most professional work environments, you spend a lot less time with people than you do in a kitchen and yet kitchens are now only catching up to the idea of having structure Mm -hmm. and having employee handbooks and rules and things like that. Uh, But Daniel Balud's organization for many years now has been a sprawling, organized Mm -hmm. entity. Um, Do you feel like you got to see things there that you hadn't seen in some other standalone restaurants because they had so many locations? Like what basically was the corporate structure helpful to you over time in learning how to grow and stay organized? Um, it was, and it was, and I feel like it was helpful to see that. Um, but it was not helpful with, in my, like in a way in my position now, because I do feel like it made me too structured hmm. and I work in such a small, like, you know, I, I, I work in such a small restaurant now with like three cooks or four cooks that I just feel, you know, I still feel like it's very hard to like break away from that corporate kind of um, world and all that structure. Because when you're in a small restaurant and, you know, in New York, as you know, it's like much more scrappy. So you have to, you know, you don't have the luxury of a plumber at your hand or like, you know, you know, nighttime cleaners and all this. So I think um, in that way, it wasn't really like helpful um, in when we opened up Besso. <laughs> well, you know, you, you make the comparison of, you know, finding a plumber, or having someone on <laughs> your staff, but at a place like Balud Sud, where there was probably, I don't know, I'm guessing what, 75 people on staff or a something lot. like that. <laughs> yeah. And probably where they had an overnight Porter crew that yeah. you came in the next day and you think to yourself, well, this kitchen looks brand new. Yeah. <laughs> that, that sure is nice. And now you're, you're on to a place where it's just a small core team. Mm-hmm. And yes, you're the chef, but you're also kind of like a glorified line cook and you're also the glorified plumber and everything, right? right? And that's that's part of shrinking down. But before you got to the small space, it seems like the entire arc has been pretty heavy duty fine dining, right. pretty high end, right? right? Um, and it's fair. is it fair to say that Besso is a lot more casual of a dining yeah. environment than, than those places? Yeah. So I'm curious, is, was there a point in your, your mind where you thought, um, I have spent enough time in the fine dining world and I'd like to 
maybe try something slightly different or or what did it work a different way? Was the job intriguing and it just kind of shaped itself around to you at the restaurant? Um, I think a little bit of both. I think um, when you're in fine dining and you're always working for somebody else, you'll never really have a voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that structure, yeah, you'll, you'll never really have a voice. And I think, uh, I also think our eating culture is changing. I don't think that many people want to eat at fine dining places anymore. Um, and I... I really just wanted to also like connect with more people. I think you don't really see a lot of like returning customers when you are in fine dining restaurants. Um, but yeah, I just feel like, you know, New York culture is like shifting. I mean, like our dining culture is shifting around the world. And I think you like, you know, places like David Chang's places really just like paved the way for Asian casual like dining in New York. And I think that's really something to be admired. I want to talk about uh, dish conceptualization mm-hmm. and also dish execution. I want to know what what you find more appealing. For for me personally, I struggle with uh, plating like a lot more than I do conceptualization. For me, like flavors and putting things together, I love that. I mm-hmm. find it to be a lot easier of a process. And then putting things on the plate um, and just picking where to to orient them, that's tough for me. So I'm curious for you, is there one that you enjoy more than the other? And is there one that you struggle with more than the other? Um, I think definitely conceptualizing is more of a struggle than plating. I think plating, because I worked in all these fine dining um, places, is really easy. Um, conceptualizing, because I, I mean, I think me and Michael are really just doing something new. And in New York, it, I don't think it has really been done before. So it's really hard to uh, figure out what's going to work and what's not going to work and what's going to be received well. And so we talk about dishes for hours and hours and hours. Um, And uh, yeah, just really just making sure that we're conveying the message that we want to convey. And like it's within, um, you know, Besso and like our theme. Um, So I think conceptualizing is uh, harder for me than... And also, I haven't done Japanese cuisine before. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what do you and Maiko want to say with Besso? You you just said uh-huh. you basically <laughs> said what I was just about to ask you. You hadn't done Japanese food before. Mm-hmm. What is the vision, and what are the goals besides giving people really delicious food of mm-hmm. Besso? Um, well, our goal is to really just bring a whole different side of uh, Japanese cuisine and to show that. Um, I think Maiko, she really wants to share her like love of home style foods and like foods that she grew up eating. And I I find that like so intriguing. And I think it's something that people are really open to, especially in New York. Um, So we just really want to show people a different side besides like ramen or like izakaya or like sushi. and like really just tap into memories of all different Japanese people and people of all different cultures as well. Do customers ever find it jarring or off-putting that you do not serve sushi at Besso? Has that yeah. been an uphill <laughs> battle to stand your ground on that? Yes. Um, yeah, it has been. Um, I think people do come in like asking for sushi or like asking what we are. Um, I think it's it's... I mean, it's like very now, like very natural for us to say just like, you know, we don't serve sushi, but, you know, we have something like similar, like our sashimi hand roll platter. Um, But it's I mean, I think the positives really just outweigh the negatives and like breaking the boundaries of what like Japanese cuisine is. And, And we're hopefully continuing to like do that. The fried chicken dish, which has gotten a lot of acclaim, mm-hmm. I bring it up because I think that it is a really interesting, strong, wonderful representation because this is what it has going on. And if there are other dishes that you think articulate this as well, please uh, share them. But the fried chicken uh, comes with a, a kupi mayo potato salad. It has shiso tzatziki on it. And then it also has some Moroccan spices mm-hmm. in the mix as well. It's a lot going on yeah. <laughs> to bring all together. No one would ever say, oh, that's a, an authentic Japanese mm-hmm. dish. So to me, it seems like you had a lot of fun coming up with all those <laughs> things. But bringing all those things together and making them work on the plate, you run the risk of it just 
being chaotic and yeah. too much going on, right? Yeah. So um, is that is that part of the fun that you're having at Besso? Like r- making things that are not Japanese, but serving them at a Japanese style restaurant? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, it is like, um, um, it is like hard to kind of like, be like, does it work? Do you like it? <laughs> to like customers. But um, yeah, it is really fun to uh, break those, like people uh, change people's minds about that. Um, um yeah what was your question? are there any other dishes that kind of exemplify that what you're trying to do there i mean to me this dish is a strong representation but there are other dishes that you can talk about that for you have you've been able to like flex your flavor creativity while still serving it at at Mike with Maiko's vision um yeah i think one of our one of my favorite dishes is uh shisomaki um which is like a, it's a peanuts and walnuts and like sendai miso. And traditionally you uh, fry it. Um, and then we have just put like a really nice, like fresh twist on it with uh, just like having fresh shiso leaves on it. Um, so a lot of, all of our dishes are really just like based on a Japanese dish. And then we just really just modernize it. So even with the chicken karage, we, it, it is like a traditional marinade of the chicken karage and like the traditional way of like frying it. And um, when people come to the restaurant, I think they're still looking for like some sort of traditional aspect. Um, and then we just like try to modernize it a different way, but still making sure that we do hold true to what the original dish is. You've run other people's kitchens and you've cooked in so many kitchens in a lot of different countries. What was the most surprising moment when you were at Besso and it was your show to run? Um, I don't know. Uh, that's a hard question. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think like, you know, going to the James Beard house was something that I always, you know, admired and, and like, you know, something I really strive for. So when we were invited to the James Beard house, which is where I met you. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> um, I think that was really, uh, a really surreal moment. Um, and then we're also cooking there again in a couple of weeks. So that's, uh, I think those, I, I don't know. I mean, there's just a lot of really, really like, I mean, in a, in a small restaurant, um, especially when you're running it, I think there's a lot of emotional highs and lows. Um, when you get like a really nice review, um, I think, you know, from, or like get named like as like Zagat's like top, like 30, um, someone to watch for, I think it, it really f- is an emotional high. But like when you see like a horrible Yelp review, <laughs> it's just like, oh. Brings you back down to, yeah. your, to earth. Exactly. Yeah, yeah the... Um, the chef role has has always been as sort of the figurehead leader of the restaurant and, and often a, as the face of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, but you just alluded to something that isn't fun of the job, which is that <laughs> at the end of the day, kind of the buck stops with you. Um, what have you found to be um, the hardest part of your role at Besso, not from the food side. What's something else that you do that no one really knows that you do that that is really tough? Like what's behind the scenes that's been challenging for you? Um, I think, uh, I mean, just I feel like everyday challenges, something always breaks down and it's on you um, to like try to figure it out. And, and you know, like uh, everyone is relying on you really. Um, but I mean, just, I feel like just every day, like something happens, like you're, um, whether like somebody is like sick or, you know, some like a, our oven is broken. And then we really Google is my best friend (laughs) cause like, you know, to call a plumber or like a repairman is like so much money for a small restaurant. Um, so you end up Googling a lot of shit and like, you just try to fix it yourself. You go out and buy a snake for your, <laughs> for your drain. And like, you, um, try to like, you know, we have, you try to like tile your own, um, floors and it's just, yeah, I think like every day just something happens and you just try to make it work. And I think that's when I feel like working in a big corporate restaurant or like places that are, we're kind of like, 
really hard for me to change the way I think about when I um, came into this like small restaurant. It's funny because we met at the James Beard house and it was, it is a wonderful, glamorous, amazing invitation. Mm -hmm. And I remember I came back from that and there was like 10 things that had gone wrong (laughs) at the the restaurant (laughs) and I had been gone for four hours and And you were by yourself. (laughs) And then, and then the next day, uh, like the backyard got clogged, like our sewer got clogged basically. Uh-huh. And it was just, and it poured that day and there yeah. was like eight inches of water back there. And I was just the juxtaposition of being like, well, that was so great last night. And now I'm have my hand like in a leafy yep. mud hole, I think <laughs> pulling it yep. out. It's, it's, uh, <laughs> those are the, those are the times when the job has, like all the, it's all the negative feelings. Mm-hmm. But then sometimes when you overcome that, it feels more satisfying yeah. than like the review or a, yeah. or a, a, a customer who loves it. You're like, okay, this is what it's like to be a small business owner or a chef that leads mm-hmm. a restaurant. Like those small intangible things can often feel like huge yeah. victories yeah. as as well sometimes. Uh, there is an exciting new development for Besso, which is... Uh, you're opening up a kiosk, second location. Mm-hmm. What exactly are you calling it? It's going to be in the timeout market, which yeah. is cool. That's going to be in Brooklyn. Yeah. Right? So can you talk a little bit about that, uh, when it will open? Are you in, Are you involved with like everything from menu design to booth design? What What's your role in that project? Um, uh, me and, well, me and Michael, we do everything together, mm-hmm. from food to uh, menu design. Um, she... Uh, is really the brilliant mind behind like everything in, at Beso. So uh, she will be definitely doing like the, the design work um, and the look of everything. Uh, we're more focused on uh, our like bentos. And um, so bentos, if I don't know if everyone knows what that is, it's like a Japanese lunchbox. Um, but we'll be doing some bentos, uh, some something from our brunch menu, which is our Japanese curry shakshuka. Um, so, which is, yeah, also like a very different <laughs> um, dish, uh, which has become one of our signatures for brunch. Um, so, yeah, that's going to be a very fun, exciting, new, casual uh, spot that we're going to do. And when is it supposed to open? Oh, in March. Cool. And so it's basically, it's a market with several stalls. Yes. And uh, are you going to be doing, from a logistical standpoint, are you going to be doing the prep for it mostly at the restaurant and bringing it over? Or will you have a separate team in the kiosk? Like, how um, will it work? We will definitely have a separate team at the kiosk. And uh, um, we will try to do it out of, uh, we won't actually, we'll try to do it like out of like a commissary kitchen which is very convenient because my husband owns a commissary kitchen. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) You married him for the right reason. I know. (laughs) And and so that's that's a big step because now you're not just thinking about things breaking, staffing, Mm -hmm. Yelp reviews, menus at one location. Now you've got two children to watch over. Right, right. Excited, scared? How yeah, are you feeling I mean, with that? We we are excited and of course like excited, scared, but I think the timeout team is very, very organized and they did open one in Portugal um four years ago. So I think we do feel like we're very supported in that aspect. Um but we've also done um a casual urban space uh for a couple months at Broadway Bites. So that kinda like helped prepare us what it was like. It was just like a lot of volume. Um and we did that out of Besso, and that was that was like fine, but it was just like it was just really hard to our walk in is really small, so we have to um, we definitely have to like get another space to do that. Will it be called Besso, or is it going to have a se- a separate name? Um, it will be called Besso. Cool. And uh, the restaurant is. We'll call it fully established. That's like unfair in the New York climate, but you've made it past the initial first couple years, right? Mm-hmm. Do you feel grounded there? Do you feel like Besso is coming into form or do you feel like it really has its legs underneath it at this point? Like how how sure are you at, at Besso and how how sure of the restaurant 
is it, you know? Um, I think we're always ever changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we definitely have our groove on for this like second year. I think first year as a restaurant, it's uh, especially with this new concept and me and Michael really like just working together and getting to know each other. It's like, you know, we're trying to like figure a lot of stuff out and like, you know, what works and what doesn't work. Um, so this year I do feel like we um, have been a little bit more established and it's been very satisfying seeing the same people, the same customers come back and are like neighborhood uh, people come back again and again. I think that's really what we really wanted in the first place for people to be a neighborhood spot because Beso does mean home away from home or second home um, in Japanese. So um, that's been very like satisfying to see people come back. Um, and I think me and Michael have a, an amazing relationship uh right now so I like going so I think we can accomplish like so much more together um you know I look at relationships like Daniel Hum and Will and I I think that's like something to really like strive for and hopefully you know we would be the female (laughs) version of that one day um so yeah I think we have so much momentum and um I only see great things for Beso. Where can people find you at your home away from home where you spend most of your time? Where is Besso located and what are your hours and, uh, and, and meal times? Uh, Besso's located on 5 Bleecker Street uh, between Elizabeth um, and Bowery. Um, our hours are 5.30 to 10.30 or 11 p.m. Um, Monday to Sunday. And we do brunch at 11 a.m. until 3.30 and that's where everyone can find you and Maiko. Thank you so much for being here and sharing your story with us on the line. Thank you. Everyone, thanks for listening, and please go online and check out information about that Winter in the Garden fundraiser event. It's going to be an awesome evening. I'll be there serving food from Samisa, tons of other great chefs, bartenders going to be there as well. Uh, Join us next week, Tuesdays, 11 a.m., for new episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.